Thank you for checking out the latest edition of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. This episode features three interviews taped in August 2020, all with entertainers who have been touring the world for decades, although right now, like everybody else, they're kind of off the road. And those people are TJ Perkins, John Oates, and LP. Next up is my interview with singer-songwriter LP, who has a very interesting, multifaceted career going on. Her first record deal was about 20 years ago and unfortunately she kind of sat on the shelf the old artist development process where you're turning in music and they don't think that they hear a hit and that sort of thing is enough to disillusion most artists into quitting music not her thankfully and beyond finding success as a solo artist LP has also written for some of the biggest artists of the last 20 years that includes the Backstreet Boys, Cher, Rihanna, etc., etc., etc. Her latest single is called The One That You Love, already has millions of streams and views and all that. But a couple of days after our chat, she was doing a first in her career, which is a live stream. Because her touring was canceled, like everybody else's, for the last, you know, eight, nine months of 2020, she decided to do a full production live stream of a concert which fans could watch anywhere in the world so we spoke about that her long island roots you know i'm a long islander that's one of my obsessions musical influences and so forth if you want to see the video of this one just click over to my youtube channel but such a pleasure to speak with lp think you're gonna like this one hey hey can you hear me lp i can man how are you sorry i'm late no problem. Yeah. You are not late. I mean, by LA standards, I think you're early. <laughs> nice. Oh, shit. Miss Pac-Man in the bag, making an appearance. Thank you very much. I mean, those things are, are cheaper than you think they'd be to, to get. Uh, am I getting you from Los Angeles? Funny. I'm in Los Angeles, yeah. But you're originally from Long Island. I do want to talk with you about that a little later, if you don't mind. Uh, eh. We'll see. <laughs> so you have Brooklyn, a big life. <laughs> well, I mean, we can talk Huntington all day here, but back uh, to you. You've had this big live stream coming up on the first. Is that the first time you've ever done a live stream like this before? Uh, yes. I, um, I haven't, I've never done one before. <laughs> the new thing. It's all the rage. It's all the rage. The kids love it. And somebody like you who's been around a long time, I have the feeling that you could do it. Well, not long, no longer. What's that? Well, you're vintage. That's that's the simple point here. Wow. All right. <laughs> somebody Let's like you, I'm sure. Could, dead hope. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you could do a three-hour show if you really wanted to. But any idea okay. how long you're going to be playing on the first? Um, uh, I think probably uh, over an hour. Something like that? Yeah. 75. Is it a play the hits kind of thing, or you don't know yet? Uh, it's a, uh, yeah, man. It's like I'm going to play like my my normal kind of set, you know, with a few surprises, I think. Hopefully. We'll see. Definitely looking forward to that one. And if it goes well, could there be a second LP live stream? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, depending on... um. How long we're in this shit for? <laughs> well said. Well, focusing on your career a little bit, you just signed with Dynalone Records in Canada, which has put out so many great artists over the years. Yeah. Did you seek them out, or did they seek you and your team out? Um, uh, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I think uh, I think we sought each other out. We, uh, you know, it's like it's like. Um, when you become friends with someone that's cool, you just kind of, you just know you're both like cool and then you, you, you hang out. I don't think, uh, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know who, who saw who first. Yeah, it's an interesting label in that a lot of major label artists use it for their side projects. For example, Nate from the Foo Fighters put out his solo album, Lieutenant, on that label. Yeah. What made you choose that label instead of trying to find another major? Because you are somebody who survived the majors, and so many of you, the hits that you've written for other people have come out on majors. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I just thought that they, we thought they had the best of what we wanted. Plus, it sounds like Dying Alone, which I think is amazing. <laughs> are you an expert at Dining Alone? Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the comedian Fred Stoller, but he used to have a blog about the art of dining alone. I'm not actually good at that. No, I like the, um, I like the, um, I like to look across at my um, beautiful lady when I'm dining. That's my, that's my go-to. <laughs> Makes sense to me. So your career is very multifaceted in that people know you as a solo artist who has hits, but then other people know the songs that you've written for other artists. Was the goal outright to write for other people or was that kind of an accident? Um, it was basically a, um, you know, a save, save my career kind of thing. I, you know, I was on two major labels for like three years. My first two, Island Def Jam and Universal. And then, um, no records came out. And, and then, um, one of my songs got cut by the Backstreet Boys. And then I started writing for other people. And it was, I was just like, oh, okay, this is cool. Actually, I don't have to like deal with people, um, you know, messing up my um my life as far as like making me do music i don't want to do or making me look a certain way i don't want to look I and mean, that's not possible but um but yeah so i just like went in into it and um and i loved it you know i didn't really to be honest at the time miss uh playing for people at all and uh mm -hmm. i think if it was longer it was only like almost two years that i was just writing for other people so if it went on longer maybe i would have missed it but i think it was a good thing and it was really good for me as a songwriter right there's seems to be more artists who had major label deals who are now writing for other artists than not the first artist that i really noticed that was doing that on a large scale was butch walker and then i noticed dan wilson wrote that huge adele mm -hmm. hit and so yeah. forth who was the first artist that you really noticed who did the major thing and then found success as an outside writer? Gosh, um, there's so many, uh, but uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think, that was like a minute ago now. Uh, but it's like, I don't think it's people that people would know, to be honest, you know? It's just like, you know, like a guy like uh, Kid Harpoon who was an artist and then went on to write all the, like, you know, huge Florence stuff and um, Jesse Ware and all that shit. You know, there's just like, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of them, you know? I mean, I think it's like, uh, to me though, songwriting is, um, you know, it's really one in the, it's, it's the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you know, it's like some people can sing and, and, you know, get in front of a crowd and, and do the whole thing. And, um, but really like if you're, if you can write songs, you can write songs. I feel like that's like the, the main thing that's like, um, that makes an artist, you know, and um, it's, I think uh, that's mostly what I'm concerned about is, you know, the, the song aspect of everything. So, because without, without, without the songs, there is no artist career, <laughs> you know, so. Mm -hmm. When you're writing, do you have to be in the mood or do you <laughs> say, we're going to be writing at a 11 o'clock tomorrow and we're going to have something? <laughs> Um, no, I don't have to be in the mood because I was a writer and when you're only a writer, that's what you have to do. There's no like, oh, do you feel like writing today? Are you inspired? <laughs> I feel good. You do? Okay, good. You know, nobody gives a shit. You just like, you know, it's just like, you know, I call it like gun to your head songwriting. You know, you're like, okay. All right. So no sandbox in your LA living room? No, no. <laughs> Well, I like to ask that kind of stuff. There's artists that I know that became outside writers who look at it as channeling the energy or the persona of the person that they're writing for. And in turn, they're never at a shortage of material. You know, it could be yeah. a dude who's 50 writing for a lady who's 20. And he's like, yep, I got the ideas right there. 
do you have to get method or really is it just the same answer? I, I, uh, I, I mean, it's, you know, there's so much at play. Like, it's like, again, it's like meeting a friend. It's like, you, you know, I've had, I've had people walk in the room and it's, people have done it to me, you know, like when I was like on that hustle of like, you know, being an artist and writing bigger writers. But like, you know, the person walks in the room and you just immediately go, like a title pops in my head, you know, or mm-hmm. like you know, brief encounter as far as like, you know, like getting to know each other and immediately just filled with like a concept that like, you know, I run by them. So I think it's, you know, um, I think songwriters, you know, often are very intuitive, you know, they just kind of immediately like kind of pick up on what's going on. Are there scraps of paper everywhere around you? Uh, no, that's all my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so scraps of text messages, got yeah, it. Yeah, it's nice. That's what's nice. It's like consolidated now. And for people that are more fans of your artist career, signing a Dynalone means that there's another record about to come out? Uh, yeah. There's and some... can you please tell me more about that? Because I would like to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, you know, I mean, I have, I have about enough material at this point for two records i've been really like i don't know i was i was on a roll before the whole um pandemic you know and then um and then since i've been home i've added even more songs to the pot you know but um because i felt like i had it already and uh and um, even as or, you know recent as last week we got another one uh so i don't know i've been very inspired and it's been you know like i kind of just um you know, there's nothing you could do about not touring. So it, it's like, um, you know, and, and what a wild time. I mean, you know, this is, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it hasn't happened in the history of rock music, you know, like. No. So it is a kind of an interesting time to like, you know, there's never been a time where, where you couldn't, where it wasn't like everybody was just like running past you if you couldn't do something, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, a, it's like, this is the first time, uh, you know, a, like the opportunities passing everyone, you know what I mean? Usually it's like an opportunity for someone else, you know? But I think the, the opportunity here lies in, the, uh, you know, um, the writing and the, uh, you know, uh, accumulation of songs. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I feel like the next record, it just feels, it feels really good. I don't know. I don't I have this like kind of, you know, when I finish a record, I always, I can't do the expectation thing because I've, I've gotten nailed with that a couple of times, you know? Once yeah. of own expectations and once of uh, a label expectations where they just were like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to be this. We're going to do this. And then you're just like, uh, you know, so I just like, I kind of just, um, but I feel there's a, I feel like I have a clean, like kind of vision of it. I just, you know, it feels like the material feels right. You know, so um, I, I'm very, I'm just very excited. It's almost like, I never want time to pass too quickly. I want to like live it, but you know, it's like I, I'm kind of, uh, I get like, can't wait till, you know, drop the whole album, but we're going to keep dropping stuff. I'm glad to hear that there's plenty more that'll be coming out and this is by yeah. no means the end. So that's all <laughs> great news. It's not the end. No, it's and only the beginning. Sure. Well, bringing it back because we are semi-limited on time here. Your Long Island roots super intrigued me as a person who moved back to Long Island and lives on Long Island and all that. Uh, where do you live? Long Beach. Did you ever come out here? No. Joan Jett lives on our block. Two members of Taking Back Sunday live down the block. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I've been there, you know, but, um, but yeah, man, I, you know, go ahead. T- tell, me, tell me how much you love Long Island. Oh, uh, no, I love four towns on Long Island. In total. <laughs> and one of them that I love is Huntington, which you have some roots in. But when people talk about Long Island's history and all the great artists, they, they usually say the same five names over and over again that we hear. Billy Joel. <laughs> well. Exactly. We might hear Public Enemy if the people are cool. Know, we'll hear okay. the Stray Cats. We'll hear oh, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But yeah. I don't remember hearing that LP was from Long Island, even though you had a record deal as early as the early 2000s. Um, yeah, you know, it's not really like, to me, it's not my town because it's like I was born in Brooklyn and then was out there and then moved to Manhattan. So I kind of consider 
Manhattan, Brooklyn, my, my roots, you know? So I don't even really identify with that. But, you know, it's a great place. You raise your kids there. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> but the water, you know, it's beautiful. You got the, the sandy beaches, if you want. You got the rocky beaches. Hey, it's nice. Good. Exactly. I'm, I'm happy for you. That's good. You made it out uh, just like Rick Rubin made it out of this town and <laughs> great kid. Bye. <laughs> exactly. Bye. Oh, it's good. You know, there's so many places in the world to be. It's lovely. It's well, nice. I got one stupid question, and then I got my closer. You ready? All right, go ahead. <laughs> stupid <laughs> question here. Have you ever gotten offered something, job-wise, career-wise, and the people thought that they were sending it to the rapper LP, E-L-P? Oh, wow. You're full of my favorite topics today. Oh, let's see. Uh, no. No. No, never, you know, but I mean, it is spelled, it is spelled differently. Um, and, uh, but you know, I'm loving me that run the jewels, um, new record. So good. It's so sick, but yeah, no, that's never happened. <laughs> and similarly ELP Emerson Lake Palmer, nothing ever has come to you. That was meant to go to. Oh, that wow. Nope. Uh, who is that? What is that? Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the project. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, yeah. What are they, what's that song? What's their big song? Oh, many, many songs. But if you have to ask, uh, you shouldn't know. Tell me. Tell me. What's the biggest one? <laughs> what's that song? Welcome to the Show. That was, that was one of them. And uh, all their songs are like 12 minutes and have keyboards. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with what you do for a living. Those, those little pop ditties. All right. Well, sorry. I didn't mean it. Hey, it happens. Uh, so in closing, <laughs> LP, any last words for the kids? Any last words for the kids? Oh, listen, kids, um, you know, um, always, you know, bring a towel when you go to the beach. <laughs> Not, <laughs> I just stole that from South Park, obviously, but, um, you know, um, but it's really nice talking to you. What do you got? What's in the, what's all those pictures in the back? What do you got there? So I started writing for newspapers and all that when I was in high school, and that's you know, like pre-internet in a way, or the early days of the internet. So they used to send you yeah. all the 8x10s of the people you were interviewing because they didn't have JPEGs and GIFs. So, you know. It's like the dry cleaners. <laughs> Say that again, I'm sorry? Like the dry cleaners. Exactly. So we got Slayer <laughs> next to Tony Danza, next to Florence Henderson, and, you know. No. If, I, if I get an LP one, that's going to go on the wall. We're going to take oh, down maybe oh, Wayne Newton. I'm sending you one. Cool. Best day <laughs> of my life. Thank you. So much for the time, LP. Looking forward to your August 1st uh, live stream. Have a great yeah, day. I'll, I'll see you there. I'll see you out there. Outrocast. Next up is my interview with TJ Perkins. Wrestling fans know him as TJP. People on social media might know him as Mega TJP. Whatever name you know him by, TJ has been doing the wrestling thing for about 20 years, and he's only 35. So do the math on that one. He started as a teenager and all that. He's been all over the world many times over. He's worked with just about every televised wrestling company there is. Currently, he's with Impact Wrestling, which is on Tuesday nights on Access TV, one of my favorite channels, big supporter of the Paltrow cast. And TJ Perkins, there's so much more to him than just wrestling. He's a big gamer, big in the video game world. He's acted, he's ridden, he's done fashion collaborations. He's also been a big face of the moment, or should I say movement, or the moment of the movement, however you want to say that, of making Filipino culture recognized on an international scale. So we spoke about that, the gaming, the touring the world, and so forth within our chat. Nice guy. I, I could have spoken to him for 20 more minutes, 30 more minutes, 40 more minutes. I think that's going to come across really quickly. Think you're going to like this one as well. TJ, how is it going there today? Hey, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. In everyday life, do people call you TJ, TJP? What, what do you like to be called? Uh, usually TJ. Uh, some people in my family call me Teddy. Um, nobody, nobody but Josh Matthews says TJP all the way every time. But. <laughs> Classic Josh. Uh, TJ's fine. Most people just call me TJ. Well, thank you so much for your time, TJ. I know you got a busy, busy press day here. And looks like you're going to be making some history very soon in Impact. When in your career did you decide that you wanted to do tag team wrestling? 
You know, I've always wanted to uh, be in a tag team. I mean, this has been for years. Uh, but it, I, I don't know if I should take it as a compliment. Maybe people have always seen me as somebody who can keep rising as a single star, which, it, you know, is great if, if that's the case. Um, obviously, I've been able to do some really incredible things, so I've been grateful for that. Um, being an X-Vision champion at one point, before and then you know the cruiser champion in wwe and doing some junior uh stuff in japan uh the super j cup for example and the best of the super juniors and the super junior tag league and and new japan um yeah i've become i guess sort of a generational staple for cruiser wrestling um which in a weird way is mirroring a lot of my heroes because when i got into this you know guerrero uh chris jericho these are guys that, that really inspired me um and that's kind of the path that they had but you know tag team wrestling is something that i always really liked um and i always really want to do because I, I have so many good friends in wrestling and a lot of them i feel like i mesh really well with um i know that in japan me and amazing red uh, th that's that's one thing that we had always wanted to do but coming back to impact fala specifically is somebody that really saw something in and i really like the dynamic of a heavyweight and a junior being matched up together and having so many other things that are similar about them that draws them together that it's not, you know, the physical is not the first thing that their camaraderie comes from. And so to me, I always thought that was really unique, a lot like how Yokozuna and Owen were. That's a great comparison, the Yokozuna-Owen combination. When I watch your matches, I get a lot of different things out of it because there might be some comedy in there. There's going to be some high flying. There's great matches all together on every level did you and Fala know each other before impact um i think other than trading a couple messages here and there or something like that no we really we really didn't um which is is funny i mean this is i guess to speak on filipino culture it, it's always the joke that we're all related and i mean i sat down with him for about 30 seconds and it felt like we had been cousins for years and we just, we get along so well. I think you can really see it too. Like when we're on camera and we're talking or like engaging with other performers, you can really see a different level of connection that we have that I think other teams don't really have because there's just, I don't know. I think our culture shines through and, and we really connect on that level socially and, and out of the ring, we've become pretty good friends, you know, since then. Um, so, you know, I really do look, look at him and vice versa, like a brother. Uh, so I think that that has always been <laughs> a unique thing for us. About 10 years ago, if you were going to go down the list of Filipino performers and entertainers who were famous, you'd kind of like strike out after like six names. You'd go, well, there's Apple the App, and I think Batista is part Filipino. And I, I hear yeah. Demi Lovato is, and nowadays it's, Everyone is Filipino. I'm wondering when you started to kind of notice that, that Filipino culture was super mainstream and not just because of Jollibee coming over to the States. Well, you know, growing up, a lot of the thing for me was that there, were, there weren't guys to connect to. You know, and I grew up at a time when, like, Manny Pacquiao hadn't really, you know, broken out yet. So, I mean, there was really nobody for us. Um, you know, Manny was a big one, obviously, still is the biggest one. And to a lot of people who, if they're not paying too close of attention, he's still kind of the only one, you know? Um, and so when I was growing up, knowing that there's a lot of, you know, different Filipinos in different walks of life and not everybody's claiming it because they're even just saying Filipino, like you go back 20 years ago, you know, I'm doing this now in wrestling 22 years, I think I'm in now. So when I started in 1998, that Filipino tights and all this stuff, people didn't know what a Filipino was, you know, um, they didn't understand it. They didn't know it was part of the Asian culture and, and, and all that. And so, um, it, I felt like in wrestling, I had to like educate a lot of people on what that even was. And then I'm watching, you know, in the world and, and Manny's kind of like doing that through boxing, which I, I'll always feel like I'm in debt to him for sort of giving me a, a reference point for our culture. But uh, I think that, you know, primarily my goal has always been to bring that sort of awareness so that people that are doing this, if you are an actor, if you're a musician, if you're anything, that now you, you feel more more comfortable claiming it 
And that's always been my goal is, is not so much for people to know I'm Filipino, but for me to help people understand that there are a lot of us and I would love for all of us to feel free to raise our flag a little bit, you know. Makes sense to me. I think there's a lot of awareness to what you do that when you wrestle, you present awareness to good wrestling, you present awareness to Filipino culture, you present awareness to gaming culture, and also on the fashion end, you do that as well, whether or not you kind of realize that that you matter to a lot of different communities. And speaking to the gaming community, uh, which console was it that really brought you into gaming as heavy as, it, as you are now? Uh, definitely the, the original NES. Um, I'm <laughs> older than people think. So I, I, uh, I, I, I was blessed to come up in a time when that was. I had an Atari as well, but Nintendo was really my jam uh, growing up. Um, Super Nintendo was probably my favorite. The height of my like retro gaming area, which the time wasn't retro, but um, <laughs> uh, was probably Super Nintendo. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've always, I, I feel like I've reached a time now, and we all have, where that generation of people has sort of um, been now defined because the new generations have like different sort of like media and, and, and uh, personal entertainment that, that defines them differently. So, you know, now being, you know, a, a mid to young adult, like it, I felt like a lot of my generation now is underrepresented, which is why I wanted to have, you know, aesthetic of, of uh, you know, retro gaming and, and, you know, Scott Pilgrim, Ready Player One, that sort of thing, because there's a lot about that time, the music, the movies, the gaming and all that goes together and and you know until now it wasn't really wasn't really represented for our generation everybody had moved on to tiktok so fast and so <laughs> tiktok is a scary thought but when you travel of course right now nobody's traveling like they were six months ago and earlier do any consoles come with you on the road oh yeah my playstation comes with me um and uh you know, my, my Nintendo Switch a lot, but usually my PlayStation, I'll have it tucked into a gaming case with a built-in screen. So, I mean, I look like a total nerd traveling. But uh, I guess, you know, it's sort of um, sort of like our cards, you know? Andre and Hogan played cribbage or poker or whatever in the <laughs> right. newspaper. And, guys, yeah, guys in my generation, we play Madden on Xbox and PlayStation in the locker rooms and, you know guys are getting the news off of their Twitter instead. So that's just a sign of the times. Well, the last gaming question I have, where are you at on Google Stadia? Oh, I, <laughs> I am I complete like a thousand light years away. Got it. Yeah. A lot of people swear it by it now because they like the fact that they don't have to travel with much gear and then other people go nope i don't know what that is or that doesn't have the two or three games i play all the time i was curious as a professional gamer where you were at on stadia if it's on your eventual try list or you're just happy with what you have now well um so i was just reading a reviewer for uh, a pc for actually a laptop that i wanted to get because to set up for my twitch streams and because uh, right now at the moment, um, I've been just doing it straight off my console. And one of the advantages he had expressed was that through like Microsoft, like if you're an Xbox guy, then stuff that, you know, is available to you um, without like all the hardware transfer, um, which is nice, I guess, you know, if you have a lot of equipment. And, you know, like especially with wrestling and I'm already going to be traveling with a lot of stuff. It's nice to have less equipment. You know, but, um, you know, being a PlayStation guy and the stuff that I have is pretty much like, well, well, uh, defined, um, you know, I pretty much take all my equipment <laughs> with me anyway. And, uh, and, um, I know that a lot of the people have been requesting retro stuff. So a lot of it's going to come off of like NES or Super Nintendo, um, things like, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there'll be definitely a variety of ways that I'll have to sort of engineer my my gaming library as I go. Definitely going to be interesting to see how you keep up with that as a future tag team champion, of course. But uh, Los Angeles, 
I believe you were a native of Los Angeles. You're still in the area. For somebody that goes, man, where do I eat in Los Angeles? Do you have any favorite spots you can rattle off? Ever since I was a little kid, I've always been a really big fan of going to like some of the popular spots, which I mean, there's great food everywhere. Um, I'm very like old. Like I love a really good like diner. So like if, uh, for people that have go to say like they visit Hollywood or something, I've always really liked uh, Mel's Diner in Hollywood, uh, for example. But there's a lot of stuff in the like La Brea area that you can find that there's like some good uh, cafe cafes. Like there's a there's a lot of good uh, Asian cafes, like Filipino style cafes and cuisine that that you can find out there. Um, I think one is called Roses. Uh, it's down in that area, but um, my favorite all time has always been Mel's Diner. I don't know, I'm scared like that. Absolutely a staple. And being somebody that, as you said before, has been wrestling since 98, people I don't think really realize that, even though they know that you've kind of been everywhere and you've held all these titles and all that, I'm sure you've been to New York dozens of times at this point. Do you have a favorite restaurant or so in New York? God, so there's this Korean barbecue spot that's not far from... It's walking distance from the Manhattan Center. A lot of the guys used to go there after events. I can't remember the cross streets, and I can't remember the name. All I know is that a few blocks, God, a few blocks from there, there's there's a second-floor second Korean barbecue spot that we always go to. And it, it's like... It's so weird because it, it, it honestly makes me feel like when I first started wrestling, like before there was like MapQuest and I, it's not even MapQuest anymore. It's like, you know, Google Maps, but like when you would have to actually write directions on like a napkin and like remember how to get there, like, you know, three streets up, take a right, you know, all that sort of thing. And I have to find it all over again every single time I go. And I wish I knew the name of it. But um, that would be my favorite spot. And I just, for life, I can't, I can't remember the name of it. But me... Uh, Kenny King, a lot of guys that have gone to it multiple times always try to find it whenever we have a chance. Probably on 32nd Street, but either way, two quick questions and then you're a free man. The first question is, you're a man with many, many tattoos. What is the number of currently held tattoos on your body? Because I have no idea. God, I don't know if I know either. Uh, last I checked, I was well over 20, 25, maybe 30, I guess. Um, I got a lot. The first one I ever got was interlocking LA on the bottom of my wrist and, um, the Filipino sun that's on my hand. I got that, the sun, and then a, a blue demon tattoo on the same forearm all on the same day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got KC on my arm, the Vegas sign on my forearm. I got a hockey mask for Canada. My, my entire right arm is all, uh, locate, like, they're all location-based. It's all um, kind of like uh, staples of my journey, just in my life and career. And it's mostly just telling the story of everywhere I've been. You know, I have my first uh, wrestling character name in, in Japanese written on my forearm for Japan. And uh, the Santa Monica Pierce, where New Japan had recruited me when I was a teenager. Um, the freeway sign for where I grew up in Riverside. Um I got a palm tree and a hidden Mickey for Orlando and, and Tampa should <laughs> for better or worse places that are significant to my uh, <laughs> life and professional history. <laughs> uh, so that's all on my, uh, on my right arm. My left arm is all like inspirations and things for my life. Um, you know, I have like a Nintendo controller. there, some tattoos, of my favorite band. I got the number eight, Kobe, you know, being an LA guy, obviously I, I have, uh, I got Kobe on my arm. Um, I have an, an Aswan, which is a monster from Filipino folklore. It's kind of like our vampire. Um, I got a uh, sugar skull with the Filipino flag for my grandparents. And I got my dad's name tattooed on my hand, which is also my name. Uh, so he asked earlier what I like to be called. And uh, we're both named, we were both named Ted. So I have Teddy written on my hand, uh, mostly for my dad. Um, I got the Back to the Future Flux Capacitor on my wrist and then on the bottom side of my forearm on the left side I have Tiger Mask, uh, Shawn Michaels and Eddie Guerrero and those are like my that's like my three guys. Wow so you clearly have a lot of meaning to what's shown on your body that's that's a lot more than a tribal so congratulations. Yeah 
<laughs> cool. So my closer for you, TJ, any last words for the kids? Uh, I just, you know, anybody that's, uh, that's, li- that's listening, reading, watching, thank you very much for following me because without you guys, there's no me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, a lot of what I do is meant to help open, you know, awareness and, and bring attention for my community and also just to uh, give a source of positivity for people. Cause you know, I was a kid with no aim growing up and to have been able to do this and I blink 20 years go by and I've, you know, had an incredible life. So seeing the world and done what I love and if this can help inspire you to do whatever you love, whatever it is, do you be an architect, you can be a plumber, doesn't matter. Um, hopefully you can see what I've done and, and think, you know what, whatever I want to do, I can do it. So that would be my message to anybody. Mission accomplished. Thank you so much for your time and looking forward to seeing what you got coming next. All righty. Thank you very much. Outrocast. Last, but definitely not least, is my interview with John Oates. Yes, that John Oates from Hall & Oates. John is one half of, I believe, statistically the most successful musical duo of all time. Not a lot of people can say that. Well, besides Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates. But the key is John was great to speak with last month in August. He just put out a new live album called Live in Nashville. Live in Nashville doesn't sound anything like the Hall & Oates catalog. It's really John embracing other genres besides R&B, soul, and pop that have influenced him over the years. It's him, as you'll see from the video on YouTube, playing really up close to the fans in attendance in Nashville. I find that very interesting because Hall & Oates have been a big deal for 45 years, something to that effect. Definitely over 40 years that Hall & Oates has been a big deal. And in the course of that, they're playing arenas, amphitheaters. I'm sure there's been stadium shows at some point in the career, but here he is playing just feet away from people. So you could see this is a real musician surrounded by other musicians playing to real music fans. It's a different side of him. Got him to talk a lot about that. Even got to ask him about Van Halen. You know me by this point from listening. I'm obsessed with Van Halen. <laughs> so there's nothing that John shied away from. You're going to find very quickly that he's a relaxed guy. And just like all of us, he's kind of holed up in his home in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, but he's handling it very well. Enjoy. Hey, John, can you hear me okay? I hear you. Can you hear me? Perfect. Uh, always a pleasure to hear you. Uh, how's your day going so far? Well, a little, a little hectic because um, I, uh, I didn't look at my press schedule close enough and didn't realize we were doing a Zoom. I thought it was a phoner. So I was in my, I was in my bathroom. And I, I said, oh, shit, I got I to gotta notch it up a little bit here. <laughs> Looking dashing as always. I think oh, everyone's going to agree with that one. And yeah. am I getting you from Colorado or Tennessee? No, we're in Nashville right now. We're actually going to Colorado tomorrow. Cool. Yeah, and we're going to escape to the mountains. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of us here on the east are dealing with the storm and all that. You guys are I know, fine. I saw that. No, no, it's fine here. Um, it went right up the coast, but yeah, I saw that you guys are getting hit. It doesn't look as bad as some of the other ones, hopefully. Sure. Now, speaking of the storm and all that, uh, or rather Nashville, your new album is live in Nashville. Now, yeah. when you were taping it with the band, did you know that outright, like, hey, this is going to be a live album, or did you just happen to tape a bunch of shows? No, uh, we didn't tape any shows. We, uh, we taped one show, and this is it. Um, what happened was um, I had been working with the Good Road Band ever since the Arkansas album. So it was about two and a half years. Actually, it was a little longer because we started earlier than the record itself. Um, we had really, you know, I was doing double duty. I was on tour with Hall & Oates. I'd come off the road for a period of time. I'd go out with the guys. We'd do shows. So over that two-year period, the band really gelled, and it was just so much fun to do that music. And um, I saw kind of a horizon for that project. You know, the Arkansas album had been out for two years. We had done a lot of touring. The band was playing great. And I didn't know, you know, I knew Daryl. Well, theoretically, Daryl and I would have been in the middle of a 40-city tour as we speak. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, 2020, I'm going to be really doing a lot of Hall & Oates shows. I said, I really need to capture the, the magic and the, all the hard work that we put into the Good Road Band, you know, before we kind of shut it down for a while. 
So in January, I booked a show at the Station Inn, which, um, you know, kind of fittingly is where I first started playing with these guys. So it was got kind of a full circle thing. And I thought it's such a great venue. It's intimate. There's always a great vibe in there. I've always had wonderful shows there. I said, let's just do the Station Inn one more time, almost like a last, a last waltz kind of thing for us. Sure. Um, and, um, I said, well, you know, let's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll videotape it. We'll record it, you know, just for posterity, whatever. I had no intentions really of releasing anything. Um, the video didn't, you know, the video's okay. It came out all right, but it wasn't really uh, of the quality that you would want to broad, a broadcast quality. But the audio on the other hand was amazing. And, um, the band was, was on fire. Uh, I, I thought to myself, and then when everything shut down with COVID, I thought, I've got this amazing live performance and I'm not going on tour. I'm not doing anything. So maybe I should release it. And that's when we took it in the studio, we remixed it. We didn't change a thing. We just gave it a great mix. And um, now, you know, ironically with the fact that there's no live music, all of a sudden a live album kind of has a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, vibe or special quality. I'm hoping people will enjoy that fact. Um, I, you know, it was just kismet in a way. I never intended it to go that route, but I've got a great live album and uh, the band is, uh, sounds incredible. And did you get a chance to hear it by any chance? Yes, I was about to ask you about that music video. You said that it, the video didn't come out that great. I love the Laurel and Hardy-like effect of the black and white okay. pixels and, and the lines and all that. Is that to hide the fact that perhaps the video quality wasn't as ideal as you wanted it to be? Bingo. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, what happened was um, I went through the entire two-hour show. It was a two-hour <laughs> show. It was a long, long show. I went through the two-hour show, and I picked the videos that were closest to being good. Yeah. And then I, then I took it to an amazing video uh, director, the guy who did my Arkansas video. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just really creative, young, young video uh, director. And I said, can you take this, you know, pretty average – live video and can you do something with it you know whatever you want colorize it do your work your work your magic and so he did so we ended up with four really cool videos um which he manipulated and and digitized and did all sorts of cool things so now we have four basic uh, promo videos for for the album but we don't have a full show but that anytime video is the one that i'm referring to yeah it yeah. looks great to me it sounds yeah. great well. as well and it amazes me that you kind of alternate between playing arenas and amphitheaters. You know, Hall & Oates' business is arguably the best it's ever been. You sold out earlier this year Madison yeah. Square Garden, which yes. a lot of people can't really do at their peak. But then you play a show like this where people can see your shoes. You, yes. Are, yes. you are a foot's distance from the people in the front row, according to the Anytime video. Do you right. like being that close to people? Um, I, I, I like both things. Uh, there are two completely different experiences. Um, but interestingly enough, there's a lot of similarities. What Daryl and I try to do in the big arenas is we try to, as best as we can, to create this intimacy by being as natural as possible. We don't use a lot of, you know, smoke bombs and we don't <laughs> use any samples. It's a real band playing live. Right. And that's, that's what Hall & Oates is all about. It's real music. It's real songs. It's real singing and playing. Well, when I play at the Station Inn in front of, you know, as you say, a foot from the audience, it's the exact same thing. It's just scaled down. And of course, there's definitely more, you know, more easier to relate to the audience because they are literally right in front of you. So in a way, there's a lot of similarities. In a way, they're completely different. The energy, I think, is the difference. The biggest difference is the energy. When you go on to a sold out Madison Square Garden show, there's this energy in the room that's palpable. You know, it's, it's electric, it's kinetic, you feel it. Um, it jacks you up. When you play the station in, it's all about, it's all about like kind of having a, uh, a good conversation in the living room. <laughs> it's about, you know, that real, no, you know, no fourth wall, no artifice. It's all about just, hey, here we are. We're going to play some songs for you. We're going to talk to you. Oh, we're going to talk actually literally talk between the stage and the audience. So, um, yeah, so in that regard, it's different. And like I said, so a little bit of each. And people have been following your career closely know that you've always fostered younger talent. 
written for other talent and all that from ice house to blue who is a great guy who i know that we both know and all that yeah. i love the album that you did that had losing it in louisiana or lose it in louisiana rather yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. so you've kind of had this dual journey of number one hits deep cuts and all that yeah, yeah. Uh, do you get to play everything that you want to play live or do you still feel like there's a lot of stuff that you haven't done well, with Daryl, Daryl and I do absolutely do not get to play everything that we want to play. Um, we have this incredibly good problem. We have too many hits, right? Uh, which a lot of people would, would I'm sure, you know, pray for. But um, and you know, you know, in a, in a sense, I think we have a, res a professional responsibility to play the songs that people kind of want to hear. And in a, you know, we are very proud of those hits. No problem there. Um, but at the same time, we have 300 songs, and yeah. some of the some of the deep cuts are pretty interesting musically and more adventurous, perhaps. Um, we would like to do that. We don't have enough time in the Hall and Oates show. Um, this, you know, my solo work gives me an opportunity to really. It what it really does for me is give me a chance to go back to my earliest musical influences, mm -hmm. the stuff that I was doing before I met Daryl, folk, blues, uh, roots, roots music, um, and having moved to Nashville and being part of the Americana community has given me that, um, that kind of, uh, infrastructure, that family right. of musicians who really understand that music, really know how to bring it out, know how to play it. Um, that we have a lot of the same, uh, you know, the same, um, musical touchstones, you know, Sam Bush and I, you know, if I talk about Doc Watson to Sam Bush, well, Sam played with Doc and Merle, you know, um, Sam, Sam's played Merle Fest for, you know, 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know what I mean? There's a lot of commonality there among the players. Uh, a lot of the players in the Good Road Band grew up on the same music that I grew up on. So even though they're, they're, some of them are younger than me. Um, so that's, you know, so that's where that, that kind of, that connection happens. Well, speaking of influences, you put out our kind of soul on vinyl earlier this year as a reissue of sorts. And when I think of you and your musical lexicon, of course, first I go to the Motown R&B thing. You just mm -hmm. talked about roots and all that. Was there ever a period in your life where you liked or followed hard rock at all? Not really. I, I think the about the hardest rock that I ever followed really was more of the stuff the the english uh the english blues rock you know the 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 stones and the yardbirds and jeff beck and things like that um you know I, because they were in a sense it was it was already familiar to me because i already knew the originals so you know i knew muddy waters and i knew lightning hopkins and i so so i was hearing kind of a a reimagined version in the 60s from them and i thought always thought that was you know even though i didn't think it was as groundbreaking as a lot of people thought it was because they didn't really understand where those guys were coming from um it was you know that's about it really i i you know growing up in philadelphia in the 60s was a really unique and amazing time because as you said from the r b and the soul the Uptown Theater was a place that, you know, I went to every, on Saturday nights and saw all the greats, you know, Sam and Dave, you know, Otis Redding, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, uh, The Miracles, you know, Impressions, whatever. Um, but at the same time, the Philadelphia Folk Festival was going on and mm -hmm. two, two amazing coffee houses in Philadelphia, the Second Fret and the Main Point, which I used to go to all the time. Um, so I got to see all the Roots performers and these, these, these uh, the, the folk performers who were being rediscovered during the folk uh, revival. And so there was this really, you know, and, and, and you know, it was, you know, to me, instead of being like two different worlds, it was really, I saw the connection between those worlds. To me, it all made sense. Here's the guys that started it. Here's how it evolved in Memphis and became Stax Volt. Here's how it evolved mm -hmm. in Chicago and became Curtis Mayfield. Here's how it evolved in Detroit and became Motown. You know, so I, I saw the continuum between that music. So I've never really made a dichotomy. I, there, was no, there was no line of demarcation between the roots music and the, the R&B of the 60s. It was just a continuous flow. Hmm. Well, where I was going with all that with the hard rock is one of my favorite things that you've ever been associated with was the covers album by The Bird and the Bee. And <laughs> you endorsed it publicly. You performed with them. That was great. It was an interesting take on a great yeah. catalog of songs that helped make them fresh over and over and over again. But 
volume two of The Bird and the Bee uh, of that series was Van Halen. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of bands that dominated the 80s, and I think of the top five bands, I'm definitely going to think of Hall & Oates, and I'm going to think of Van Halen, yet I don't know if I've ever read about your path crossing with them, even though you were at the highest of highs at the same time. Our paths cross with them all the time. We, we actually shared a lot of the same production people. We shared the same security guy, the same lighting designer, uh, sound man, um, some of our roadies and technicians. So Van Halen would come off the road and the guys would, would go on the road with us and vice versa. Then they'd go back to Van Halen. Um, and, you know, we hung out with those guys, uh, not a lot, but, you know, because, you know, in, in those days you were moving so fast that the, the, the various solar systems would only kind of come in proximity. Right. They'd come in proximity, but very seldom intersected. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, those guys, uh, one of the great, great rock bands of all time, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, we were, we were both kind of hitting our stride at the same period of time. And you and Dave Lee Roth seem to have the same exact influences from the Gamble and Huff catalog and all that. If, if you've ever seen him uh, re-recording the vocals of Love Train over and over and over, so it's 40 times <laughs> on each other. I, I think I missed that one, but I think I might have to dig back in and find that. <laughs> but back to you, as I was saying before, you've always embraced younger talent and ridden with a lot of them. And people who are looking at your YouTube channel not only see the new video for any time on there, but see that you've been recording stuff from your homes, you know, covers and yes. inside the house and all that. Are you the kind of person that's writing or playing every day, even when they're not on the road? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, this, uh, this um, COVID thing has really, you know, this is the first time, this is the longest time I've been home since I started as a professional musician in 71 or 72, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know, I, w- I remember about a month into this thing, I remember waking up one morning and said, so this is what retirement's like, huh? <laughs> I said, I don't think I like it that much. Um, but what it did is it gave me an opportunity to, um, I rebuilt my home studio. Um, I hadn't really used much uh, home studio uh, stuff because there's so many amazing professional studios here in Nashville and so many amazing professional musicians that whenever I wanted to do something, I would just call. Hey, man, you want to do a session? I'd put, a, put an incredible band together. We'd go in the studio, incredible engineer, great sounds. But all of a sudden, I wasn't doing that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to, because I used to do a lot of programming back in the 80s, back in the Hall & Oates days, in the, in the primitive way that we had, to, you know, with, early, with early, early synthesizers, early, like, little multi-track cassette players. Mm-hmm. I would do some programming and take that programming into the studio, and then it became records. Um, stuff like that, like on Out of Touch, I programmed the the chorus of Out of Touch prior to actually taking in the studio and making the record. Um, so I had really like, kind of left that behind for many many years, and all of a sudden I took out my old MIDI keyboard and you know got you know got my programming together, my speakers, and and all of a sudden began to write. And uh, so this has been a really really uh, inspired period for me. I've written more songs in the last couple months than I've written in the last ten years. Um, wow. and, bran- and branched out with uh, different styles as well. You know, I wrote a theme song for, uh, for a, car, a car blog um, that wanted an 80s feel. And I kind of re-challenged, cha- uh, channeled my 80s vibe and did a sequencer thing. Um, working with a young hip-hop artist from South Carolina on a movie, on a movie track, which is incredible. In fact, I've, I'm working on a movie as we speak, hmm. a great movie called Gringa, which is going to come out, well, we as soon as they get their distribution together. Um, and I've got three songs in that movie, one of which I'm doing a duet with a Mexican uh, female singer. Um, and the other one I wrote with a good friend of mine named Daphne Willis and Aaron Wright. Uh, we wrote it via Zoom, as a matter of fact. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that'll be in the movie. And uh, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I stay active. Um, I'm really... Uh, getting a chance to, um, you know, look a little bit more inward, you know, during this period of time. You just mentioned that you've written more in the past few months than you had in the 10 years prior and talked about how you were big into home recording and all that. Does that mean that there's like a hundred John Oates songs that could eventually see the light of day? Uh, I wouldn't say a hundred, but there's some, there are some good ones. Um, Actually, you know, right before the whole thing broke down, Daryl and I were getting ready to talk about making a record together. 
Mm. So immediately I switched into the, into that mental, you know, creative mode and started writing things that I thought sounded like a possible Hall and Oates songs, which I actually sent a few to Daryl, you know, and he was like, Oh man, this is cool. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And we never got together because the whole thing, you know, kind of fell right. apart. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll re- re- revive that idea and get back to it down the road. But for now, so, so I've got that backlog of, of Hall and Oates type songs. Um, I've got some folky country type stuff that I've written with some Nashville writers via Zoom. Uh, and here again, I'm, I've got three songs in the Gringo movie. Um, and so, and th- their song, those songs are all completely different. Uh, and uh, it's fun. So, you know, I've been living in the it, kind of the musical past, you know, kind of reimagining the old music from the 1920s and 1930s. And now I've, I've kind of done that. And I feel like now I'm thinking about what's happening right now. And it's, a, it's definitely more contemporary uh, in feel. Hmm. Well, going back to uh, what I was saying before, where that you guys are doing the best tour numbers you've ever done or comparable yeah. to that. When was it that you kind of realized that you didn't need hits to be this very successful cottage industry? Well, we did need hits because we wouldn't have been the cottage industry if we didn't have those hits. Um, what, what, you know, I think, I mean, the reality is, is that the songs, the songs supersede everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, and I don't want to use this in any kind of negative way, but just use the Eagles as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, here you have, unfortunately, you know, the, the great Glenn, Glenn Fry passing away. Uh, his son, you know, gets on stage, they hire Vince Gill and arguably sound better than they've ever sounded before. And it's the songs that people need to hear. Those songs transcend the personnel in the band, believe it or not. Uh, Look at Journey, you know, the great Steve Perry is no longer singing, but Arnell is an incredible singer. And, you know, of course he sounds a lot like Steve Perry and Journey has done, you know, incredibly well because the younger generation doesn't even know who sang those songs, but the songs, the power of those songs, the long, you know, the, the, the longevity and, and the, the shelf life of these songs are really what makes the difference. That makes sense. But where I'm going with that is here in New York, uh, we know that a year has gone by when they announced the Jones Beach uh, summer concert schedule. Uh, in recent years, you've played Forest Hill Stadium. But the bottom line is, it's the summer. Yep, whole notes are playing. It's okay, we might see John Oates playing at City Winery or a more intimate space here. It's kind of like you guys are always on the road. And even when you were, you know, years between albums, it would still be, oh, they're playing the amphitheater or the arena again. So I'm curious when you reached that point where even though you had this great catalog that you knew of, well, we're going to be around forever, even if VH1 isn't playing videos and and MTV isn't embracing us, we're going to be okay. Well, you know, I think what the way Daryl and I have always thought about ourselves and our career was that it was more important to sustain who we would be as musicians mm-hmm. and let the chips fall where they may. Fortunately for us, we had commercial success, which allowed us to continue, uh, you know, on, on an upward trajectory. But let's just say the hits wouldn't have happened. Somehow or another, he and I would both be musicians. I don't know what we'd be doing. Maybe we wouldn't be working together. Maybe I'd be producing. Maybe I'd just be a songwriter. Maybe I'd be playing acoustic guitar in a folk club. Maybe he'd be, you know, uh, joining another band or, you know, who knows what he would be doing. Um, but that's the decisions that we made. How do we, how do we continue to be musicians? And keep, keeping your eye on the, and focused on, on that as opposed to success the success comes from the hard work, the dedication, the professionalism. That's where success comes from. If your goal is to be successful, if your goal is to be a star, if your goal is to be a, a you know, a, a, a superstar, basically, that's a, that's a, that's, that's the wrong way to look at things. Right. They should be the, you know, being a, a star, being, you know, uh, a big name should be the, the byproduct of the work, the professionalism and the dedication. That makes a lot of sense. And you were talking about before how you're playing every day and all that. 
are there other facets of your life that get nearly as much attention as music besides family? You mean besides my wife? <laughs> well, it's a family. I assume that your wife is part of the family, but. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, she and I have spent a lot of time together recently. <laughs> so, you know, as, as we can all probably relate, you know, uh, and uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to see our son who lives in D.C. And my father, who's 97, lives in Pennsylvania. We haven't seen him. So we do FaceTime and things like that. Um, you know, I um, we haven't really we're not super social in terms of going out, partying, hanging out, big dinners and things. We've never even done that during the normal periods of time. So that doesn't bother us too much. Um, I get out and I do a lot of hiking. I go into the mountains. I, you know, I love being outdoors. Um, I drive my car, I'm, you know, I have a, some antique cars, sports cars, and I, and I like that sort of thing. I get out in the, into the country roads and just zone out, and, you know, no radio, no phone. And it gives me a chance to just, to, you know, kind of, you know, revitalize myself. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I've been doing. And, and the rest of the time, it's music. Where I was going with that is, man, you still look great all these years later, you know, man to man compliment right there. The guy's still in shape. He's never been out of shape. How much of that is actually trying to exercise, you said hiking and diet versus kind of luck? Um, some, a lot of it is, is genetic. My father's 97. Um, he's amazing. He's still, you know, I mean, he could still swing a golf club, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I got, I got, I got the lucky genes on that, on that side of things, but I've been, you know, I've been an athlete ever since I've been a kid. You know, I was a, I was a wrestler and, you know, I did all that sort of thing. And I always, I was a bike, I did a lot of bike riding, a lot of serious uh, skiing and bike riding, backcountry skiing, mountain climbing. Um, lately I've been doing yoga. I took up yoga quite a while ago and that's been one of the greatest things for me ever. Um, it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, and my wife is very conscious of um, eating healthy and we do our best, you know, so. You sound like one of those people that work really hard but can turn it off when they want to or need to. I'd like to. Uh, sometimes I can't. <laughs> you don't see me at three o'clock in the morning when my eyes pop open like this and I, my brain is like going, you know, that happens too. So um, I'm, I'm a bit of a workaholic, I admit it. Uh, and I, but I do like to be busy, so. But there are instruments behind you. I can't tell you how many uh, Zoom interviews I've done yeah. where the people did not have instruments there. Or, for example, Brian Wilson, who I love the music of, his piano is out of tune in those Rolling Stone <laughs> Instagram videos. So, yeah, well, that's all right. The records he made make up for, for any shortcomings he may have now. Absolutely. And uh, winding down here, of course, being respectful of your time, uh, three quick questions. The first one is, you've always been outward about having a sense of humor and you know knowing that people perceive you a certain way but not taking yourself too seriously the the cartoon pilot of jay stash was an example of that <laughs> i know the folks at primary waves so they oh, okay. took me to that a long time ago but right. was there a moment in your career where you kind of turn things around and you realize huh maybe i don't have to take myself too seriously I've always been kind of that way. Um, I, I really didn't, you know, the one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to be locked into that guy from the eighties, you know, it, the, 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 you know, the mustache, the, the pink pants and the, you know, the, the, the outrageous thing, you know, whatever. Um, I did want to leave that behind, but at the same time, it's part of me, you know? So I, you know, in a way, uh, you know, the mustache has become some weird iconic touchstone for millennials. Don't, you know, whatever. Um, still got it attached to a goatee. So, you know, I had to modify it a bit. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of keeping up with the, the kids. But um, I don't know. You know, uh, it's fun now. I think I embrace it a little bit more as I've gotten older. I just, uh, I just created a, um, a logo, you know, a mustache-shaped logo with my name in the middle. And I'm just having, the, I'm having all these bandanas made with my mustache logo, you know, so you can wear a mustache in front of your mustache. So... Wow. Okay. Question number two of three. Will we ever hear you uh, perform the song Italian Girls live? I play Italian Girls uh, often when I do my singer-songwriter show um, because I like to talk about it. I, I always say that the second verse of that song is one of my favorite verses I've ever written. You know, um, 
I drink, I drink too much vino rosso and say no more amaroni. I eat, I eat, I eat too much pasta, basta. I'm so full and yet so lonely. I think that's, that's one of my high points in my life. Yeah, it is a standout song with a great lead vocal, to say the least. And the closer, John, any last words for the kids? Last words for the kids. Uh, don't eat sweets. Listen to your parents. They're always right. No, I'm kidding. No, I've got, I've got no parting words. Uh, all I say is uh, I hope everyone stays safe. I hope we can, uh, as a, a collectively, as a country and a, a civilization, I hope we can get past this and uh, be sensible and think for ourselves. And that's, uh, that's, that's all I got. If it isn't obvious enough, thank you for the decades of great music. And oh, thanks. It, it's not summer without a Hall & Oates concert somewhere close to Long Island. So hopefully we'll see you next summer, to say the least. Well, hopefully uh, you'll have a live album from Nashville to uh, hold you over for a month or so. Absolutely. Great live record. Looking forward to the other videos posting to, to YouTube from Live and yeah, Nashville. They're coming. Oh, well, it's, it's kind of cool. I just did, actually, I just did a series of uh, acoustic guitar breakdowns where I broke down the, some of the songs on the live album showing what I played as opposed to, you know, as my guitar being part of the, the ensemble. So, um, you know, I went into the finger picking, some of the intricate stuff. And uh, so we're going to roll out these kind of uh, online guitar lessons as well. As a guitar player, I am oh. looking forward to that as well, John. You Thank Perfect. you so much for your time. Right. Keep up the greatness on all ends, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz, produced by V13 Media, theme song by Steve Schiltz, audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Outrocast.